0: Okie dokie, a podcast for those addicted to the study of Scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel!
1: Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still on our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 21. In the previous episode we continued the scenario and situation with jesus and the woman at the well we had the conversational pieces back and forth between jesus wanting a drink and in the middle of the day with this very controversial context of uh first century judaism and talking with someone that's not your spouse uh in a public place and there is a discussion about what living water means uh, Jesus was bringing up, and the woman at the well kind of had a similar response that Nicodemus had earlier in the gospel narrative about maybe treating it a little more literal, but at the same time, yeah. she was also giving Jesus a run for his money with some of her responses about recognizing that he was a prophet and asking this question about, you know, who who is the true people of God, and where is the true place of worship, yeah. and And then Jesus retorted with, ah, but there's going to come a day where, you know, there's not going to be this debate on where we're going to worship because true worship is going to come in spirit and truth. And I think
0: that's where we left off from last time. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so, uh, yeah, it was kind of a tough place to take a break, but it's all right. This this is all good. Uh, The story's got to, we just got to keep going with the story. I think uh, if you're ready for me to take off, Samuel, I want to try to do like the... In our last episode, and we get like scenes from last time, that kind of deal. You ready? Yeah, go for it. All right. So you got to get this picture in your head. Remember, Jesus, he starts getting a little popular. They decide they have to leave. They're going to go through Samaria, which is weird. They're at the well. The woman shows up. Jesus, like you say, hey, give me a drink. And she's like, well, what are you asking me for? And then he's like, well, if you knew, you'd ask me for living water. And and so she finally gets, she's like, well, fine, then give me the water. And then he turns around with, well, okay, go get your husband. <laughs> what? What? And of course, she doesn't have one, and you get that little weird bit. And, you know, is she, is she really bothered by that? Or is she just, you know, doesn't really care? It's just like reading her life story, whatever. But then, like you talked about, she has that, that theological question or doctrinal question, whatever, what's right about this? And he, he actually comes down on the side of the Jews saying, hey, look, they know better than you what they're doing and, and understand, and th- this was that final part, understanding that the true worship transcends the natural. It's spirit and truth. We talked a lot about that. But what's interesting is where she goes next. So after he has said all those things, we get to John 4.25 and it says this, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, this, this is, I think this is so interesting. So, okay, first of all, just quick side note notice that John, again, he's trying to carefully equate Messiah and Christ for his readers just, they're, they're one and the same. So there's a point. Something else. This is a, a Samaritan woman. So we know that they were also waiting for a returning one. And from their perspective, I think the closest thing to everything that we've talked about already would be the like a prophet like Moses. Uh, Sammy, do you remember back, uh, remember early on with John the Baptist, they sent people to him and the question was, who are you? Remember all that? Yeah, and then he he actually said uh, he was well. The questions he said no to. He wasn't the Christ. He's not Elijah, nor the prophet. And that was all back in John chapter one, uh, verses nineteen to twenty three. That was all great, but notice the Samaritans are looking for one, and she's you know kind of kind of throwing that up here now. I know that Messiah is coming. Well, here's the thing though she had this very important question, at least we assume it's a very important question to her. And Jesus doesn't answer, I'm sure, the way that she had hoped. And so now we're left with this question. Why does she bring up Messiah? Is it, is she beginning to suspect that maybe he is the Messiah? You know, sort of along the lines of we expect the messiah to actually tell us things like what you're telling me right now or is she actually kind of just casting aside whatever it was he said because she thinks messiah's got the real answer so it's it's more along the lines of yeah yeah well whatever what do you know messiah's messiah will give us the real answers
1: that's interesting
0: yeah and, and you don't You don't really know, and that's, it goes back to, you know, when she said, give me this water, was she just being serious, or was there a little bit of sarcasm in there? What's All this stuff, and, and I think what it's leading to is this idea that this woman at the well, she's not a simple character. I think that her character is much more complex than we normally give it credit for, you know, like she's a bad girl, and so... We're seeing this continuing in, in, in uh, this little section right here. And now what's really awesome, verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. So just uh, how, do, how do I say this? In the book of John, there are lots of things, recurring themes, popular things people like to talk about. Well, one of those is that in the book of John, there are a number of I am statements, Remember when Moses was asking God what his true name was, and one of the things that God said was? I am who I am. Yes. I, and so when Jesus is using the I am statements in the book of John, they're tying it back to that. It's a way of Jesus declaring himself to be God, which is, it's pretty awesome, right? So here in John, and it depends on who you listen to, right? Some of them say that there are seven of these famous I am statements, And others will say that there are 10. And then others, you know, when they're laying them out, even though they're saying that there's only seven or there's only 10, they'll actually list multiple references because they're, I don't know how to say it, maybe including more like the conversation or the paragraph or whatever as a single one, stuff like that. The thing is, technically, if you just went to the Greek and you looked for the phrase, when Jesus is speaking, he actually says it 23 times times. So again, it just kind of depends on who's doing the counting. Uh, the seven or the ten or whatever, usually those come across as more direct references to, you know, God being I am, and therefore Jesus is God because he's saying I am, that kind of thing. But in all 23 instances, at the very least, there's, there's like this, uh, some indication of Jesus's identity and often centered around Messiah. Now, we'll try to point them out as we go along the way. I don't know if we're going to hit all 23, uh, but we'll certainly try to hit, you know, like the popular ones. Uh, so, that's a thing. Jesus, who, okay, uh, Samuel, what was the reason that they were even going through Samaria? Uh,
1: <laughs> was it to avoid publicity?
0: Yeah, remember, he was getting really popular. And Jesus didn't like it. And he's like, you know what? We need to skedaddle. We need to get back to Galilee. And they go through Samaria. So we've seen him not want to be well-known. And yet right here, talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he just blurts it right out. I know the Messiah is coming. I who speak to you am he. It doesn't get any clearer than that. So, I, I, You know what? Maybe he just thinks it's safer where they are. That kind of thing. I, 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 that would make some sense. But we don't we don't fully know. But he he just he has no reservations. He just blurts it on out. It's
1: super cool. Um, I don't want to spoil too many things with bringing this up, but <laughs> there is a lot of history in the Jewish narrative with the statement, I am, or here I am, yeah. and if you've noticed, our intro to this podcast involves the phrase, here I am, and that is not uh, by accident, no. um, and it it actually goes all the way back to Abraham, uh, a quick plug for another Bayma Discipleship episode reference, uh, it's entitled, Here I Am, <laughs> and it, it, it starts... All the way back when God calls Abraham to make this promise, this covenant that's going to transcend generations, you know, even this has happened before they even became a nation. God calls Abraham and he says, here I am. And the language implies this aspect of like, I'm not going anywhere. Like I'm going to remain faithful and loyal to whatever is going to happen from here on out. And then it happens again whenever Abraham and Isaac are going up to the mountain to to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac is, like, trying to talk to his dad. And then Abraham again, he responds by saying, Here I am, son, like, no matter what is going to happen in this situation, like, I'm going to be right here beside you. And then I'm I'm going on a rabbit trail. I know at That's Sinai, it. whenever God is describing to Moses and then to tell to the people who he is, and when he says, I am, that is a a direct callback for the people that, oh my gosh, that it's the same God that came to Abraham that we know about in our history with that response back and forth. And now Jesus is bringing it full circle whenever he is saying, I am. So it's just, I I just love that continuous narrative of I am across all of those characters. Oh yeah, and it's everywhere.
0: It's just filled. The Bible's filled with this, I am, here I am. It's great. I love it. All right, so so here they are. Jesus has made this announcement. We get down to verse 27, and it says this. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So, The woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Okay. So again, and the reason I wanted to try to paint the picture a little bit at the beginning is because you've got to have this movie kind of image in your head so you can see everything that's going on. They're finishing up their conversation, Jesus and the woman, and all of a sudden the disciples come back. And, you know, you got to figure, they're, they've got like some takeout from Popeyes or something because they went to get food. <laughs> and they're shocked to see Jesus talking with a woman alone. And we've said it. This was taboo in the Jewish culture. The obvious concerns were, you know, things like temptation or even just like a, appearance of impropriety. And can we just say, those are really wise concerns. In fact, if, for, for people like us, you know, when whenever any one of us reaches that place where we're consistently choosing God's will above our own like Jesus was, well, maybe we could consider lightening up on this a little bit. But I think these are really good concerns. That age, this age, that culture, this culture, doesn't matter. It's smart stuff. But how interesting <laughs> that John Bothers to tell us that they don't actually say anything, but then he goes ahead and lets us know what they were thinking. Like maybe we shouldn't have left him alone. You know, we should have, somebody should have stayed in case he needed something here. He went and had to ask this woman or maybe something like, uh, uh, what on earth could have caused him to actually speak to this woman? You know, that's, we wouldn't have expected him to ever do something like that. It's just very, very interesting. But then the woman, like we have that little bit about the disciples and then we drop it for a second, go back to the woman. She just heads back to town. Maybe, you know, it's like, hey, there's a whole group of, you know what, I'm out of here. I got to go. But she heads back to town and, you know, I, I can only assume in such haste that she leaves her water jar, which is that in itself is a super interesting picture. The very thing that she was seeking. She came out there for water. That was the point of her trip. And let's also note, what is one of the very, very necessary things for life, Samuel? H2O. Water, right? And she just, she just leaves her jar. She, it's, it's, that has become of no importance to her in comparison to what she found, right? Right?
1: That's really interesting. I've never noticed that the text includes that description
0: about leaving that behind. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we do that with everything, don't we? We just read right mm-hmm. by stuff. Yeah. But so, so she went out seeking water, a very necessary life-giving thing, and what she found was the Messiah. Hmm. Hmm. And then she tells the townspeople that this guy told her her life story and asks them to consider Could this be the Christ? And I I found something interesting. Apparently, a lot of scholars, you know, they argue about things that we would never think about. But apparently, the Greek underneath this, it suggests an expected negative response. So instead of saying, can this be the Christ, It, it might even be something more like, this can't really be the Christ. Can it? Right, so it's just interesting. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Uh, He couldn't, couldn't actually be the Christ, could he? You should come see.
1: Sort of like not the interaction she had with this individual. It wasn't what she expected the Messiah to be. With that language implying a negative response, like uh, we expected something else. Like, yeah, it can't really be him and how he looks and how he responded to me, can it? Right, right. And isn't that going to be a a
0: theme throughout the New Testament?
1: Yeah, Messiah Ben-Joseph versus
0: Messiah Ben-David. Yeah, yeah, it's great. But now, I'm sorry, I've got to go back and point this out. So here's this woman, and again, the classic interpretation is that she's a bad girl, but notice... If she goes back and tells everybody this and asks them to consider, hey, could this be the Christ? Well, if she was just a bad girl, if she was the town strumpet or, you know, whatever you want to call this thing. What do you think, Samuel? Would they listen? Would they care to anything she has to say?
1: I feel like they would totally ignore her.
0: Yeah, that's well, that's what I think. But watch what happens. Verse 30. They went out of the town. And we're coming to him. Well, okay, we don't exactly know what was going on in their heads yet. We don't know that, but apparently everyone does listen and care enough because they're going to go out and see this guy. And so I'm just, I'm offering it as a possibility. Maybe she isn't as bad as we often think. Whatever the truth is about her, the townspeople wanted to see this guy for themselves. Now. Classic. Okay, like in a movie, scene change. We are back to the well. And so, meanwhile, <laughs> that's right. And it even says it, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? <laughs> yeah. Is this not a crazy story when you slow down and read through it? I mean, th- this is weird stuff. But on one hand, this is classic John storytelling. What do we do? We create confusion so that we can then offer the explanation. Now, in this case, though, I'm going to stick up for the disciples a little bit. There are no underlying metaphors or longstanding traditions or any, anything like that. They came back with food. And he says, I have food you don't know about. That would actually be confusing for them. It really would. Now, I'm sort of blaming John for the whole confusion explanation thing. It's also possible that Jesus himself actually communicated this way, enjoyed interacting this way, because it actually is very, uh, could we say, Eastern or very Jewish. It's a way of communicating that causes you to think to consider to ruminate <laughs> if you will right yeah and so i mean we don't know but how weird that he would say this to them and of course let's just let's just get this out there jesus has no literal food so he's obviously trying to teach them something now think about this samuel what was the thing that he was trying to teach the woman with? Water. Yeah. And now what's he trying to teach the disciples with? <laughs> Food. And what are the most basic necessary things of life? Food and water. Yeah. Yeah, there's something to that. We need to, we need to not overlook it. Jesus is, is bringing them down to just the very base of everything. Now, thankfully he's at least going to go on and try to explain what he means. So what do we got here? We get to verse 34 and Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Hmm, That's kind of cool. So just as the woman was quick to forget the water because that was a very necessary thing, but she quickly and easily just forgot all about that because there was something else more important. Jesus is explaining that for him, doing God's will is more important to him than even his very necessary food. And I think it would be a bad idea For us to look at this and not remember that Jesus had this this purpose of living, walking here on the earth as a human, limiting that God part of himself so that he could experience life as a human. And so what we see him doing, even in this very thing, we need to aim for that same attitude, that same behavior, because he was doing it as a man, that gives us the hope, the encouragement that we can at the very least have it as a real, true goal. Just aim for it, you're not going to hit it if you don't aim for it. so again, uh, we've already pointed out that what we have in play here in the story, and this is like story within story this that's why this is so interesting and fun but we've got the most basic human needs food and water and and then what we see is that they have spiritual counterparts right we talked about the water first and remember we talked about how uh, not only do you drink it and never thirst but it also wells up within you and pours out and so we had those ideas of uh not only salvation but revelation and regeneration uh all those things and and that was all Through the Holy Spirit, we talked about that, and now here we're talking about food, the doing the will of God. Jesus is making this point to the people he's talking to in this story, but I think we need to hold on to that and recognize that those are important things for us as well. The same way we have basic human needs in the natural, these are our basic human needs in the spiritual. Salvation, revelation, regeneration, doing the will of God— all of that together, with the help of the Holy Spirit, those are our most basic human needs, and we've got to hold on to that. And then for what it's worth, Jesus is uh, he's going to try to, to refine the point a little bit, um, at least one aspect of God's will, that his disciples need to be viewing uh, in the same way that Jesus is. He's trying to, he's trying to get them to see what he sees, uh, the way that he sees it kind of stuff. Yeah, I wanted to
1: touch on real quick before we move on that aspect, that inclination of seeing God's will as more important than even taking care of the basic physical necessities like eating food. Absolutely something I need to do better at. We all do. Um, But I feel like it was something necessary for me to bring up. I don't think that it means crossing a threshold that taps into negligence where you have this state of mind where you are saying because I'm doing the will of God, like I don't need food and God's going to take care of that whenever he's going to take care of it. Like, Jesus still performed the basic human functions of eating and drinking just like we did his entire life yes. i think that this is just an interpretive piece to say that when you have an opportunity to deny your own desire for a particular moment in time so that you can elevate someone else in their yes. state and in their distress that's what you should do it's not saying that it's go- your whole life is going to be this r- miraculous state where you don't have to worry about any of your physical needs because your physical counterpart is somehow corrupted or bad. Like, God wants you to take care of yourself. You're, you are a good created being. Yeah. We just need to be reminded and start practicing that discipline of denying our self-interest in order to promote the interest of others. I think that's actually a Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 reference, Paul says.
0: "Uh huh, Yeah, and, and, and you're absolutely right. God may call someone to such a thing. And we might even look at John the Baptist and go, you know, he was kind of like that. But that's not for everybody. Because you see one guy doing it doesn't mean that everyone must do it the same way. God gives you a brain. God expects you to walk out life, all of those things. And, and, you know, your point, Jesus. But he, he's trying to get him to see that picture, trying to get him to, to join in with the, his prioritization. In life so yeah,
1: yeah, this will take just a second uh Paul that's, that's that reference. I just wanted to read it because he's saying the exact same thing that Jesus says right here, okay. Philippians chapter two verses three and four, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than, your, than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests but have also for the interest of others
0: yeah. And notice it didn't say, ignore your own interests. It just said, in addition to those, look at others and, you know, yeah. it, when possible, elevate them above yourself. Yeah. ah, mm-hmm. it's good. Good call, Samuel. like that one. All right. So, so now Jesus is going to try to get them to see at least this one aspect he wants them to come on board with. We get down to verse 35. He says this, do you not say, There are yet four months. Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So in a sense, it's like, remember how they, in verse 27, they didn't say their questions out loud? Uh, It's almost as if Jesus is answering those unspoken questions back in verse 27. um, He was talking to the woman because... I think we could say she was ready for harvest. She represented this thing that he was talking about. And I think we could go further because we know a little bit of what's happening in the other scene of our movie. He knows that the townspeople are as well. And we'll see that as we go. Now, what does Jesus do? He's pulling out common agricultural language to help the disciples see something, right? Something they can really relate to. In nature, okay, we can look at a crop, and we can recognize when it's ready to be harvested. In fact, it doesn't even require that so much. It's all quite predictable. You know that if you plant it at this time, it'll be ready to harvest at that time. All pretty easy stuff. Well, Jesus is trying to get them to see that the time for spiritual harvest has come. The same way that they would recognize a natural harvest, they need to see the spiritual harvest. And then he says if they would only look, they could see it, and, and they are about to. Now, this is interesting, and, and every time you start talking about what scholars think, scholars think or say or whatever, it, you can always find somebody who disagrees, but there are some who they're trying to figure out, well, what time of year is this? What's going on? They seem to think that the time of year... That, that this story is happening is actually at the time of the barley and the wheat harvests. So, why am I bringing that up? It's just to say, if they were to literally lift up their eyes and look around, it's possible they may have actually seen fields of grain, like barley and wheat. They may have actually seen fields ready to be harvested, which would have been interesting in and of itself— But obviously, that's not what Jesus' point was. And so, remember the other scene of our movie? She said, come see, and the townspeople are on their way? Mm -hmm. Maybe when they lift up their eyes and see, maybe they see the townspeople coming. Hmm. Right? That'd be kind of a cool picture, too. It would be. Yeah. So, I I have a question real quick before you go to
1: the next verse, uh, and it may be something that will get answered in the next verse, but if people are hearing you say Jesus is trying to get them to see that the time has come for a spiritual harvest. In my mind and in other people's minds, asking the question, well, what is spiritual harvest? What what does that
0: mean? Yeah. Okay. That is a difficult, difficult question, Samuel. And in fact, it is going to come up as we continue through the text, um, Obviously, we can look at things like, well, there were people who had no hope of eternal life, and now they do. Well, that would be a spiritual harvest, yeah? Um, You could talk about things like, well, what about people who do actually commit their loyalty and faithfully toward Christ, God, and they begin to live a life being the image of God, is is that a type of spiritual harvest? Well, yeah, for sure. Now, in this particular instance, the context, the story, and what's going to happen, I think you just have to say these are people or souls, however you want to think of that, for the kingdom. I think that's what's in context here, but I think if if you tried to limit it to that you know, for every conversation here on out, I think that may bring you a little trouble. But anyway, that's what I think. Okay. Now, having said that, I also have to say we're on verse 36, and I'm just going to say it before I even talk. This one is a toughie. (laughs) It's just, I mean, I'm going to read it, and it won't be as if it sounds all that strange until you actually try to figure out, well, what's what's really being said, right? So let's do it. Verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. All right, let's kind of step through. We see that word already. I Again, I, we did this before. I think it'd be a lot better if we thought of it as currently. Currently or at this very moment. So Currently, the one who reaps is receiving wages. And and so, you know, you could relate that back and say, well, there's no need to wait four months. It's already here. Um, another thing I'm just going to mention, when we talk about the kingdom and the abundance of the kingdom, there's also stories about how people are actually sowing while others are reaping. They're all going on at the same time. So it, the, the mm. abundance, the fertility, it's so great. You sort of You sort of see that coming in here. But here's where it gets a little strange. The one who re- reaps is receiving wages. Okay, well, obvious things. There's due compensation for one who reaps. Like in the natural, if you went and got a job and you were doing that, well, you'd get some sort of compensation. But in the context here, so what is that compensation? The wages that are received, is that is that the food? for doing his will that he was talking about? Are we talking about some sort of actual compensation or spiritual compensation? Or is it just metaphorical or what? Right? It, It starts to get a little weird. But one thing we know is where there are reapers, they receive wages for reaping. And that this is happening now. Maybe we're a little murky on what those wages are, but we know that much. And just get in your mind, the when we're going,
1: or when Jesus is going back and forth between this spiritual and then agricultural metaphor, a reaper is someone who is doing the gathering, someone who is yeah. actually claiming the product of, you know, the, the, the crop, the fruit, the vegetable, whatever, and the sower is the one who is doing the planting.
0: Yeah, yeah, good. I didn't even think to say that. So yeah, that's perfect. So the next thing he says is, uh, uh, and gathering fruit. Okay, so in addition to the wages, there's some kind of fruit. And this goes back to something I I was saying just a minute ago. Well, what are we talking about? There are souls in the kingdom. There are good deeds. Those are specifically referred to as fruit in the scripture. You could say, well, I guess there's probably a bunch of other things that we could plug in here. uh, But maybe between those two things, we could just go, well, it's probably both. I mean, they're, they're inextricably linked. When you, when you become a part of the kingdom, if you will, or, or however, I don't know what, how you want to say that phrase. I mean, the thing that should follow in your life is the good deeds, all that kind of stuff. So you're receiving wages, you're gathering fruit for eternal life. Well, Samuel, if you reaped a harvest, and I don't know, some grain, whatever, fruits, it doesn't matter, how long is that going to sustain you?
1: Um, I mean, it depends on the size of the harvest. Yeah. Uh, but it should be. I mean, if it's a worthy enough harvest that you're, you're, you're reaping for the entire season.
0: Yeah. But here's the important part. It's limited. I mean, it's going to run out, right? Yeah. 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 But the harvest that Jesus is talking about here, well, this results in something eternal. So we got a little, you know, contrast going on. So this eternal life and and we're going to say this out loud again because we need people to sort of get used to hearing this concept. This eternal life was both now and not yet. We it, and I think what we did, we said maybe we were a conduit, we could sort of reach out and and bring some of the kingdom into this current age this current world because the kingdom does in fact already exist and yet it won't come into its fullness until later right so this eternal life similarly we can we can get a foretaste of that even while we live now even though we will likely die and yet you know we're tasting of that that future resurrected life kind of thing so we can enjoy the harvest now and live in expectation of its future fulfillment. So we got that in here. And then he says that the sower and the reaper are going to rejoice together. Well, who's the sower? Well, there's still more confusion. I mean, are we talking about, you know, the Old Testament, like the scriptures? Are we talking about men from the Old Testament, like the uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the prophets? Are we talking about John the Baptist, who was just in the story before this one? Um are we talking about Jesus? Right? I don't know. I don't know the answer. All I know is that there have been sowers. There are sowers and there will be sowers. And it's just hold on to that one fact. There simply are those who sow. And in a similar way, there have been, there are, there will be those who reap. There simply are those who reap. And again, that beauty of the kingdom, sowing and reaping at the same time, sowers and reapers together, right? Mm-hmm. But the point is they're rejoicing together. And well, I'm going to save that because we got more coming below. So uh, let me just say this. We rejoice together. We, we get to rejoice not only in the work itself, whether we are one who is sowing or one who is reaping. We also rejoice in the wages, whatever those are. We rejoiced in the harvest. And even then, you might go, uh, whatever that is. It could be the things we said. It could be more, whatever. It's all joy. It's all part of the story. And what is that big story? It's the one that's been going on since the garden, that, that things are returning to the way they should be. That's the story that God's involved in. That's the story he's working out and that we are joining into. So I don't know. That's a weird verse to me. So other people might find it easy or whatever. That one just stands out as goofiness to me. But that's all I got on that.
1: Yeah, I was just going to add really quickly uh, with that aspect of eternal life about enjoying it now and then later in its future fulfillment. You and I were just talking about this the other night in another study that we're in that. Uh, the extra biblical texts like the Midrash and Talmud say that in the kingdom and in the world to come, the, the, there's not going to be like this celebration, like uh, that we treat good deeds that we do here on this side of uh, oh, right. the, the kingdom and the world to come now, because when God's law is so second nature within our being it's the standard yes but that's that's why these the eternal life can be experienced now and why um we have that invitation to do these good things uh within the challenge of fighting our evil inclination and yeah uh, you know the things that want to take us away from that yeah Uh, there's going to be a time where uh the triumphant overcoming of those obstacles to do the good deeds is not going to be present, and that's why there's celebration to be had now when that occurs. Yeah. Uh, And then along with that, the rejoicing together aspect, we were just reading through Ezra and Nehemiah when the people get out of exile, they return back to the promised land in Jerusalem, and there's this portion in that book where there's a public reading of the Torah to the people, and you know the all of the citizens who have returned they're they're hearing this and they're realizing that what they have done in their idolatry and turning away from god and they're mourning and they're weeping and then Ezra and Nehemiah both are like don't weep like what I, what we want you to do now is to go home and eat choice foods and yeah. choice drink because we are seeing repentance happening now and that there is a reason to celebrate when repentance happens. Yeah. So yeah. I just wanted to throw those things in there because they're, they're really cool pictures.
0: Yeah, it, and it's, it's a great thing to have, you know, just in your pocket, that idea that, hey, when you're resurrected and you've got the Torah written on your mind and on your heart, there's no merit in doing good. There's no merit in repentance, course, there won't be any. All of that opportunity is here now. Seize it. Right? That's a a great picture. Love that. Mm -hmm. All right. So he's talking about the sowing and the reaping, blah, blah, blah. We get down to verse 37. He says this. For here, the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. I, I, I feel like... Yeah, At least whatever what it was we said about verse 36, you know, we're, we're all kind of staying in tune here. But let's see what he's talking about. One sows and another reaps. Now, you got to figure, this could be really bad news. I mean, think about it. If you're the one that put in all of the labor sowing something, and then someone else reaped for themselves, well, then all my labor benefited someone else, right? That, I mean, normal people, that's going to sound like bad news. Here. The disciples are the reapers, so I guess for them, that's good news. But remember that, that Jesus said that both sower and reaper benefit and rejoice in the harvest. So there's something really different and unique about this. So that saying, one sows and another reaps, there is no bad connotation, only good. I uh, want to, this reminds me of something back in the Old Testament, so I want you to read this, Samuel, back from Joshua chapter 24, verse 13.
1: I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards
0: and olive orchards that you did not plant. Yeah. So, here they were, Israel. They enter into the promised land, and they're wiping out uh, cities, or some become uh, uh, slaves, you know, whatever, however all that worked. But they didn't have to build cities. They got to just live in ones that already existed. They didn't have to plant vineyards. they just got to eat from the ones that were already there. They didn't have to plant olive orchards. They just stayed, the, uh, right? That imagery that comes from the pl- the promised land well, first of all, that imagery of the promised land was imagery of the Eden, the Garden of Eden. And so now Jesus is pulling this forward showing that that same kind of imagery others have labored and you've entered into their labor right that is for them here and now so it's it's increasing the measure of good news if you will and tying it into Israel's history and the whole giant story that God's working out So that's all cool and I think you know we can we can grab that pretty easily but Samuel, there's something really weird about verse thirty-eight. I don't know if you noticed it. He's sitting there talking. He's talking about so uh, the harvesting and how months and this and seeing the harvest and blah, blah blah. And all of a sudden, he gets to verse thirty-eight and he says, "I sent you, huh?" Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Doesn't even feel like that much has happened yet in Jesus' story, and he's already
0: speaking in the past tense. Yeah, why is he talking past tense? I, it, it doesn't make any sense. And it's kind of funny. I've read some of the scholars and, you know, usually they're very impressive people and you just go, wow, I wish my brain worked like that. And sometimes you read them and you're going, boy, I think that you've actually, you tried too hard. That, you messed up. <laughs> um, but it's, it is, there's like this consistent thing where they're, they're actually tying themselves in knots trying to figure out how to make, I sent you. Make some sort of sense. Now, the reason I bring that up is because they actually have come up with a really cool way of looking at this. I just don't know if we can accept it as valid, okay? But what they say is, if you could rewrite it, you you might say it something like this. You have been being sent from long ago, and that hasn't changed. Which... I think is just a super cool picture. You got Jesus, he's he's identifying himself as the one who has been sending people all across time to, to reap the harvest, if you will, right? Now, the thing is, again, I kind of feel like they're doing a stretch Armstrong with the Greek here. I, I just don't think it works that way, but, you know, they're really smart guys. Maybe they're onto something. I don't know. Uh, and then another thought I had is, well, Maybe maybe John is kind of inserting some of his own thoughts again, you know, like after the fact. I it doesn't seem like it, but but I don't know how else to explain it. And then I guess another one would be, you know, we're trying to walk through the gospels in what we consider time order, and we're depending on other people helping us put it in proper sequence and that kind of stuff. Maybe there's something about this story that's all out of time. I don't know. It in the end, it's just weird that all of a sudden Jesus drops into the past tense and says, I sent you. When, at least according to all the text, he hasn't sent them to do anything yet. But anyway, I just thought I'd throw it out there so you didn't miss it.
1: Yeah, so good. I (laughs) I feel like I slow us down so much after you you bring up so many cool things because my brain brings up so many things in response to what you say. But uh, when you had said about some people could potentially treat one sowing and another reaping as bad news, like all my labor benefited someone else. Mm. My mind went directly to the Apostle Paul, and you can read this on your own, oh, yeah. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it's like verse 14 all the way through verse 31, the the aspect of there being one, bard, one body in many parts about, you know, everyone has a role if you remove one of those parts the body's not going to function and in this case if people are all working on the same team in this case it's god's team then it, sh- it doesn't matter whether yeah. you're a sower or a reaper because the benefit is repentance the benefit is um bringing the, the kingdom onto this earth and i mean even look at abraham he was a sower he didn't get to reap absolutely anything that god had promised him and That's yet you know right. he's revered as this amazing person of faith so yeah. i just wanted to keep that in people's minds and then i hope this is going to be a segue for the next verse because all this time as we've been going down these verses this aspect of the fields being white for harvest and then combining that with jesus saying i have been being sending you you know from across generations to go (laughs) sow and reap what if um people being white for harvest is that people's disciples people's teachers have been pouring into them trying to get them to know the story of god preparing their minds to be able to receive it and accept it and it it's like a it takes two to tango aspect where you can you can do all that you can do to try to bring this message to someone, but it's only through God's story and then that person wrestling with it for them to be able to decide, man, is this something that I want to stake my life out on? Is this something that I want to actually start following? And I think the next verse shows maybe where the Samaritans, where their hearts were, that maybe they were actually wanting more for their lives than what we typically give them based on their response and what's about to come
0: next. Yeah, 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 I think that's, yeah good good uh good segue uh so we get to verse 39 and and now again it's, it's kind of like a uh, scene change or whatever again 39 says this many samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony he told me all that i ever did so uh, they didn't just trust her enough to go see this guy, it says that they actually trusted her enough to believe in him based on her testimony, her word. And again, I just got to throw it out there. Maybe she's not as bad as, as we've painted her so simply before. And yeah. I'm just, again, I'm arguing for she's a little more complex than that. But also, isn't this a great picture of the power of testimony? hmm never underestimate your simple little story of what god has done for you all she said was he told me all that i ever did now obviously <laughs> they, you know they're, they're a little so, little succinct in, in the way they write stories in the gospels but you, you get what i'm saying
1: yeah some people in that town may have like known all of her backstory and they're like yeah. man if someone can know all of your story he must be a big Amen. deal yeah
0: yeah very possible yeah It's true. So, okay, so they're believing because of that, but then you get to verse 40 and it says, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. So again, you're seeing the two two scenes sort of coming together, him and his disciples and uh, the townspeople on their way, looking up, seeing the harvest, blah, blah, blah. So they get there And uh, this is so outside the box. Them asking him to stay. And we've said it, Samaritans and Jews, they're hardly even cordial to one another. But they ask him to stay based on this woman's testimony. And I don't know if you caught it when I said, this is so outside the box. He stayed there two days. (laughs) Maybe, maybe he was hungry you know, for that food that his disciples didn't know about. I don't know. He, he's he's going to stay with them. But this, oh, Samuel, I didn't even see, I have not seen this before. I studied for doing this episode right here. They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Notice the disciples suddenly go missing. Which, you know, given some of the other things we've seen, you wouldn't think too much about it, except that they don't show up again in John's gospel until chapter 6, verse 3. Jeez. What does that mean? Were they really not around for a while? Well, maybe. Uh, Not necessarily, but maybe. And then you've got to wonder, is it possible... Was this like a bridge too far? Were the disciples not really able to accept the idea of bringing the Samaritans in, right? And, and so they left? Or maybe John just quits talking about them? Just just to, to kind of make this clear, let's go to just after Pentecost, uh, Samuel. Read for me Acts chapter 1, verse 8.
1: Yeah. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea
0: and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Yeah. This, it's such a cool picture. Notice we start with the the tightest focus, Jerusalem, and then it expands out a little bit to Judea. Then it expands even further and it covers Samaria, and then it expands all the way out to the whole earth. And what's amazing about that at the beginning of Acts is you see that worked out in the following, uh, I don't know, 10 or 11 chapters in Acts. And by the time you get to chapter 8, you actually see them going to Samaria. So maybe at this time it's a little too much, a little too soon. Or, I don't know, maybe the fact that they've disappeared from the story doesn't mean anything. We can't really know, but it's really interesting. Either way. Their prolonged absence from John's narrative is probably something we should keep an eye on uh, in case, I don't know, some, somewhere, someday we, we get some insight to that. So anyway, I thought that yeah. was cool. Yeah, and I I'm, I'm,
1: might be saying controversial statement right here in response to that, but I think that we could take a page out of the Samaritans book here with seeing their radical hospitality and how they invited Jesus in to in, despite their cultural differences. Yeah. And that is something that has, that has started, that God's people are a people of radical hospitality that goes all the way back to Abraham and yeah. Sarah. If you yeah. want a better look at that, Genesis 18, chapter 18, this amazing story of after Abraham got circumcised and then the the yeah. birth of Isaac is foretold by these three men coming to Abraham and Sarah's camp and specifically... In ch- chapter 18, verse 6, uh, Abraham went into the tent very quickly and told Sarah, like, measure, like prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and bake it into bread cakes. And the language implies that it's almost like, it's like hundreds of loaves yeah. or something. It's some ridiculous <laughs> it's number.
0: <a> <laughs> and then
1: Abraham also, then the next verse, it says that he ran and went and got all these animals to prepare and cook and patriarchs don't run in ancient Jewish culture, number one. And then literally like the previous night, he had just gotten circumcised and yet he's running to go (laughs) tend to these people. So I don't know. It's just when I see these people who are so different than Jewish people and Jesus inviting him in to stay I'm just like that's, that's image bearing right there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you're absolutely right. We need to learn from their example. And, You know, if we were Jewish, we'd go, but they're Samaritans. (laughs) But we're not, so we're okay with that. Yeah. Uh, Okay. (laughs) All right. So uh, this is so good, but we're almost done. Um, So remember, many believed uh, because of the woman's testimony, et cetera, et cetera. We get down to verse 41, and it says, and many more believed because of his word. So now they're believing because of the things that he was telling them. So we've got many who believe because of her, many who believed because of him. And then we get to verse 42, and it says, uh, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So, they're no longer simply taking the woman's word for it. They now know for themselves that he is the Christ. And I, this is the end of the woman at the well story. It's the last time I'm going to say it. They were taking her word for it. That seems really weird if she was just a bad girl or the town strumpet or whatever. So, But then, a, an interesting phrase we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. I'm sure most of us would never know that that phrase, savior of the world, was actually the title for the Roman emperor. Hmm. And so (laughs) you can all now maybe maybe these people really said that or maybe John, the writer, the storyteller, put that in there because, you know, he's uh, taken a little shot at the Roman Empire through this story, you think, you think the Roman emperor is something big. You think that that's an important thing. Well, guess what? The true savior of the world. Okay, that's this guy right here. Now, I just love that, that picture, mm. that image. But, you know, something else that, that I thought of about this, when it, that phrase, savior of the world. Now, we know God's faithfulness for, for all of mankind right and and that's that's what's wrapped up in this whole story. He is making a way for God and man to dwell together again, but it isn't limited to that. What God has done through His Messiah affects all of creation. See we're, we're men, so we look to resurrection for the fulfillment of that work. but even the heavens and the earth will be, in a sense, resurrected. Just as uh, Jesus' new body was much like the original, we'll read about that much later, uh, so will our resurrected body be much like its original. And so will heaven and earth be much like the original. Uh, Samuel, read for me. Romans chapter 8, verses 20. I'm sorry. Wow, I got that all messed up. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm having you read. I'm going to have to look it up. It's Romans 8 something. <laughs> Here, let me take a peek real quick. Okay, Romans 8, 20 to 21. Read that. Okay.
1: For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the
0: freedom of the glory of the children of God. Yeah, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Oh, How about another one? Uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth
1: for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so so when we read that phrase savior of the world, of course it's it's man-centric uh, in the context everything else, but how cool that it also brings in this idea of hey, everything is going to be made new. The whole concept of a new creation. Yeah, that's for man but it's it's for everything everything is going to be made new and i just think that's a beautiful picture thought we'd end with that yeah and
1: may i say that all of that stuff is going to come about through uh this jewish hebrew aspect of yadain of of knowing god that i think is happening really well in verse 42 like in in a way these people are saying yeah, we don't have to rely on your testimony anymore because we've experienced it for ourselves. Yeah. And in Jewish thought that that is what true learning, true wisdom is about. It starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 when it says that Adam knew his wife. In in Jewish thought, we are to to seek to know God in the in the same manner in which spouses intimately know one another like to go that deep with the creator of the world and it's it's symbiotic because if you go to psalm 139 god says the same thing about us as human beings he says oh lord you have searched and you dod me you have searched and you have known me so it's this call and response thing of like i know you i've experienced you like, come and know and come experience me at the same time. And that, like, us doing that and fulfilling that is going to bring, you know, Savior of the world, oh, yeah. new heaven, new earth. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say that, too.
0: Well, and now that you've said that, finish this for me, Samuel. Depart from me. I, you died, you not. I knew you not. Yeah. I never knew you. That's heavy stuff. Yeah. Kind of a tough place to stop, but you know what? (laughs) He is indeed the savior of the world. So how about we all get to knowing that and letting him know us, and now we're on an upbeat. (laughs) Ta-da! Okie dokie. Thank you for listening
1: to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you are notified when our episodes release on Sunday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time so that you never miss an episode. Our podcast is now available on all podcasting platforms, so please make sure you check us out on your electronic device. You can also visit our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions or concerns, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time... We hope and pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.